Welcome back to our audiobook series on the formula of Concord. Now, last week we uh, covered the introduction in the first article on original sin in what's called the solid declaration of the formula of Concord, the nitty-gritty details over some of the more controversial issues in the early Lutheran church that, well, if to be frank, are still pretty controversial today. So let's get into probably what for today is the most controversial issue in Christian theology, that of free will. We're going to read through Articles 2 and 3 and Article 2 on free will. Well, bear with me. Please be patient. There is a lot to cover here. With that said, let's go ahead and get started. 2. Free will or human powers. There has been a controversy concerning free will not only between the Papists and our theologians, but also among a number of theologians of the Augsburg Confession. We shall therefore first of all set forth the real issue in this controversy. Man with his free will can be found and viewed as being in four distinct and dissimilar states. In this controversy, the question is not concerning the state of man's will before the fall, nor what man after the fall and prior to his conversion can do in external things affecting this temporal life, nor what man can do in spiritual things after the Holy Spirit has regenerated him and rules him, nor what man's free will is going to be like after he will have risen from the dead. The chief issue is solely and alone what the unregenerated man's intellect and will can do in his conversion and regeneration, by those powers of his own that have remained after the fall when the word of God is preached and the grace of God is offered to him. Can man prepare himself for such grace, accept it, and give his assent to it? This is the issue which has been argued by some of the theologians of the churches of the Augsburg Confession for quite a few years. The one party held and taught that, although by his own powers and without the gift of the Holy Spirit, man is unable to fulfill the commandment of God, to trust God truly, to fear and to love him, man nevertheless still has so much of his natural powers prior to his conversion that he can to some extent prepare himself for grace and give his assent to it, though weakly. But that without the gift of the Holy Spirit, he could accomplish nothing with these powers, but would succumb on the, in the conflict. On the other hand, both ancient and modern enthusiasts have taught that God converts man through the Holy Spirit without any means or created instruments, that is, without the external preaching and hearing of the word of God, and brings them to the saving understanding of Christ. Against both of these parties, the pure teachers of the Augsburg Confession have taught and argued that through the fall of our first parents, man is so corrupted that in divine things concerning our conversion and salvation, he is by nature blind and does not and cannot understand the word of God when it is preached, but considers it foolishness. Nor does he of himself approach God, but he is and remains an enemy of God until by the power of the Holy Spirit, through the word which is preached and heard, purely out of grace and without any cooperation on his part, he is converted, becomes a believer, and is regenerated and renewed. 
In order to settle this controversy in a Christian way, according to the word of God, and by God's grace to bring it to an end, we submit the following as our teaching, belief, and confession. We believe that in spiritual and divine things, the intellect, heart, and will of unregenerated man cannot by any native or natural powers in any way understand, believe, accept, imagine, will, begin, accomplish, do, effect, or cooperate. But the man is entirely and completely dead and corrupted as far as anything good is concerned. Accordingly, we believe that after the fall, and prior to his conversion, not a spark of spiritual powers has remained or exists in man by which he could make himself ready for the grace of God, or to accept the proffered grace. Nor that he has any capacity for grace by and for himself, or can apply himself to it, or prepare himself for it, or help, do, effect, or cooperate toward his conversion by his own powers either altogether or halfway or in the tiniest or smallest degree, of himself as coming from himself. Second uh, Corinthians 3 verse 15. But is a slave of sin. John 8 34. The captive of the devil who drives him. Ephesians 2 verse 2. Second Timothy 2 verse 26. Hence, according to its perverse disposition and nature, the natural free will is mighty and active only in the direction of that which is displeasing and contrary to God. The following reasons from the word of God support and confirm the foregoing explanation of and summary reply to the questions and issues stated at the beginning of this article. It is true that they are contrary to proud reason and philosophy, but we also know that the wisdom of this perverse world is folly with God, 1 Corinthians 3, verse 19, and that it is only from the word of God that judgments on articles of faith are to be pronounced. In the first place, although man's reason or natural intellect still has a dim spark of the knowledge that there is a God, as well as the teaching of the law, Romans 1, 19 through 21, verse 28, and verse 32, nevertheless it is so ignorant blind and perverse, that when even the most gifted and the most educated people on earth read or hear the gospel of the Son of God in the promise of eternal salvation, they cannot by their own powers perceive this, comprehend it, understand it, or believe and accept it as the truth. On the contrary, the more zealously and diligently they want to comprehend these spiritual things with their reason, the less they understand or believe. And until the Holy Spirit enlightens and teaches them, they consider it all mere foolishness and fables. It is as St. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2.14, the unspiritual man does not receive the gifts of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Again, since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through its wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of the gospel that we preach to save those who believe. 1 Corinthians 1 verse 21. The others who are not reborn through God's spirit, quote, walk in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, 
alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. Ephesians 4, verses 17 and 18. Quote, Seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God. Matthew 13, verses 13 and 11. Quote, no one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have gone wrong. No one does good, not even one. Romans 3, verses 11 and 12. In this way, Scripture calls the natural man simply darkness in spiritual and divine things. Ephesians 5, verse 8 and Acts 26, verse 18. Quote, the light shines in the darkness, that is in the dark, blind world, which neither knows nor regards God, and the darkness has not comprehended it. John 1 verse 5. Moreover, Scripture teaches that the man who is, quote, in sin is not only weak and sick, but that he is truly lifeless and dead. Ephesians 2 verse 1 and verse 5 and Colossians 2 verse 13. Just as little as a person who is physically dead can, by his own powers, prepare or accommodate himself to regain temporal life, so little can a man who is spiritually dead in sin prepare or address himself by his own power to obtain spiritual and heavenly righteousness in life, unless the Son of God has liberated him from the death of sin and made him alive. Thus, Scripture denies to the intellect, heart, and will of the natural man every capacity, aptitude, skill, and ability to think anything good or right in spiritual matters, to understand them, to begin them, to will them, to undertake them, to do them, to accomplish, or to cooperate in them as of himself. Not that we are sufficient of ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, our sufficiency is from God. 2 Corinthians 3, verse 5. They are all incompetent. Romans 3, verse 12. My word finds no place in you. John 8, 37. The darkness comprehended it not. That's John 1, verse 5 again. The unspiritual man does not receive, or as the Greek word actually has it, does not grasp, take hold of, or apprehend the gifts of the Spirit of God. That is, he has no capacity for spiritual things. For they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them. Again, 1 Corinthians 2 verse 14. Much less will he be able truly to believe the gospel, give his assent to it, and accept it as truth. For the mind that is set on the flesh, the natural man's understanding, quote, is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. That is Romans 8 verse 7. Summing up everything, what the Son of God remains eternally true. Apart from me, you can do nothing. John 15, verse 5. And what St. Paul says is also true. For God is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Philippians 2, verse 13. This appealing message is a very great comfort to all devout Christians who perceive and discover a little spark and a longing for the grace of God and eternal salvation in their hearts. They know that God, who has kindled this beginning of true godliness in their heart, 
wills to continue to support them in their great weakness and to help them to remain in true faith until their end. Here, too, belong all the petitions of the saints for divine instruction, illumination, and sanctification. By these petitions, they indicate that what they ask of God, they cannot obtain by their own natural powers. In Psalm 119, for example, David asks God more than ten times to give him understanding so that he might rightly comprehend and learn the divine doctrine. We find similar prayers in St. Paul's letters, Ephesians 1, verse 17 and 18, Colossians 1, 9 and 11, uh, Philippians 1, 9 and 10. Of course, such prayers and passages about our ignorance and impotence were not written so that we might become remiss and lazy in reading, hearing, and meditating on the word of God, but were written in order that above all things we should thank God from our hearts for having liberated us from the darkness of ignorance and the bondage of sin and death through his Son, and for having reborn and illuminated us through baptism in the Holy Spirit. And after God, through the Holy Spirit in baptism, has kindled and wrought a beginning of true knowledge of God and faith, we ought to petition him incessantly, that by the same Spirit and grace, through daily exercise and reading his word and putting it into practice, he would preserve faith and his heavenly gifts in us and strengthen us daily until our end. Unless God himself is our teacher, we cannot study and learn anything pleasing to him and beneficial to us and others. In the second place, the word of God testifies that in divine matters, the intellect, heart, and will of a natural, unregenerated man is not only totally turned away from God, but is also turned and perverted against God and toward all evil. Again, that man is not only weak, impotent, incapable, and dead to good. But also that by original sin he is so miserably perverted, poisoned, and corrupted that by disposition and nature he is thoroughly wicked, opposed and hostile to God, and all too mighty, alive, and active for everything which is displeasing to, pleasing to God and contrary to his will. The imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth. Genesis 8 verse 21 The heart of man is deceitful and desperately wicked that is, so perverted and full of misery that no one can fathom it. That's Jeremiah 17, verse 9. St. Paul explains this text. The mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. Romans 8, verse 7. And again, the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and these are opposed to each other. Galatians 5, verse 17, We know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. Romans 7, verse 14. And shortly thereafter, St. Paul says, I know that nothing good dwells within me, that is, in my flesh. For I delight in the law of God in my inmost self, which the Holy Spirit has regenerated. But I see in my members another law at war with the law of my mind in making me captive to the law of sin. Romans 7, verses 18, 22, and 23. If the natural or carnal free will of St. Paul and other regenerated persons wars against the law of God even after their regeneration, the will of man prior to his conversion 
will be much more obstinately opposed and hostile to God's law and will. Uh, let me read that again first. That's an important statement here for the how Lutherans view free will. If the natural or carnal free will of St. Paul and other regenerated persons wars against the law of God even after their regeneration, the will of man prior to his conversion will be much more obstinately opposed and hostile to God's law and will. From this it is evident as we have pointed out at greater length in the article on original sin, to which for the sake of brevity we only refer, that the free will by its own natural powers can do nothing for man's conversion. Righteousness, peace, and salvation cannot cooperate and cannot obey, believe, and give assent when the Holy Spirit offers the grace of God and salvation through the gospel. On the contrary, because of the wicked and obstinate disposition with which he was born, he defiantly resists God and his will unless the Holy Spirit illuminates and rules him. For this reason, the Holy Scriptures compare the heart of unregenerated man to a hard stone, from Ezekiel 26, 26 and Jeremiah 5, verse 3, which resists rather than yields in any way to human touch, or to an unhewn timber in Hosea 6, verse 5, or to a wild, unbroken animal. In Psalm 73, verse 22. Not that man, since the fall, is no longer a rational creature, or that he is converted to God without hearing and meditating upon the divine word, or that in outward or external secular things he cannot have a conception of good or evil, or freely choose to act or not to act. It is as Luther says in his comments on Psalm 91, quote, in secular and external matters affecting the nurture and deeds of the body, man is indeed very clever, intelligent, and extremely busy. In spiritual and divine things, however, which concern the salvation of his soul, man is like a pillar of salt, like Lot's wife. Yes, like a log or a stone, like a lifeless statue which uses neither mouth nor eyes nor senses nor heart, inasmuch as man does not see or recognize the dreadful, cruel wrath of God over sin and death, but continues in his carnal security, even knowingly and willingly, and thereby runs into a thousand dangers and finally into eternal death and damnation. All pleas, all appeals, all admonitions are in vain. It is useless to threaten, to scold, or even to teach and preach, end quote, until the Holy Spirit enlightens, converts, and regenerates a man, a destiny for which only man, no stone or log, was created. And while God in his righteous and severe judgment cast away forever the wicked spirits who fell, he has nevertheless willed, out of particular and pure grace, that our poor, fallen, and corrupted human nature should again become and be capable of and a partaker in conversion, in the grace of God and in eternal life, not by its own natural and efficient aptitude, capacity, or capability. Our human nature is in recalcitrant enmity against God, but out of pure grace through the gracious and efficacious working of the Holy Spirit. Luther calls this a capacity which he explains as follows. Quote, when the fathers defend free will, they affirm a capacity for this freedom in such a way that by divine grace it can be converted to God and become truly free. 
a condition for which it was originally uh, created. Augustine has written in a similar vein in his second book against Julian. But before man is illuminated, converted, reborn, renewed, and drawn by the Holy Spirit, he can do nothing in spiritual things of himself and by his own powers. In his own conversion or regeneration, he can as little begin, effect, or cooperate in anything as a stone, a block, or a lump of clay could. Although he can direct the members of his body, can hear the gospel and meditate on it to a certain degree, and can even talk about it as the Pharisees and hypocrites do, yet he considers it folly and cannot believe it. In this respect, he is worse than a block, because he is resistant and hostile to the will of God unless the Holy Spirit is active in him and kindles and creates faith and other God-pleasing virtues and obedience in him. In the third place, the Holy Scriptures ascribe conversion, faith in Christ, regeneration, renewal, and everything that belongs to its real beginning and completion in no way to the human powers of the natural free will be it entirely or one half or the least and tiniest part, but altogether and alone to the divine operation of the Holy Spirit, as the Apology declares. To some extent, reason and free will are able to lead an outwardly virtuous life, but to be born anew, to receive inwardly a new heart, mind, and spirit is solely the work of the Holy Spirit. He opens the intellect and the heart to understand the scriptures and to heed the word as we read in Luke 24:45. Quote, then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. End quote. Likewise, quote, Lydia heard us. The Lord opened her heart to give heed to what was said by Paul. Acts 16, verse 14. For God is at work in you, both to will and to work. Philippians 2:13. God gives the repentance, Acts 5.51 and 2 Timothy 2, verse 25. He works faith for, quote, It has been granted to you by God that you should believe on him, Philippians 1, verse 29. Quote, It is the gift of God, Ephesians 2.8. This is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent, John 6.29. God gives an understanding heart, seeing eyes and hearing ears, Deuteronomy 29, verse 4, Matthew 13, verse 15. The Holy Spirit is a spirit of regeneration and renewal, Titus 3, verses 5 and 6. God removes the hard, stony heart and bestows a new and tender heart of flesh that we may walk in his commandments, Ezekiel eleven nineteen thirty six 36, verse 26, Deuteronomy 30, verse 6, Psalm 51, verse 12 creates us in Christ Jesus for good works, Ephesians 2, verse 10, and makes us new creatures, 2 Corinthians 5, 17, Galatians 6, 15. In short, every good gift comes from God, James 1, verse 17. No one can come to Christ unless the Father draws him, John 6, verse 44. No one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him, Matthew 11, verse 27. No one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit, 1 Corinthians 12, verse 3. Apart from me, says Christ, you can do nothing, John 15, verse 5. All our sufficiency is from God, 2 Corinthians 3, verse 6. What have you that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if it were not a gift, 1 Corinthians 4, verse 7. 
It was this passage in particular which, by St. Augustine's own statement, persuaded him to recant his former erroneous opinion as he had set it forth in his treatise concerning predestination. Uh, quote, the grace of God consists merely in this, that God in the preaching of the truth reveals his will. But to assent to this gospel when it is preached in our own work and lies within our own power. And St. Augustine says further on, I have erred when I said that it lies within our power to believe and to will, but that it is God's work to give the ability to achieve something to those who believe and will. This doctrine is founded upon the word of God and accords with the Augsburg Confession and the other writings before mentioned, as the following testimonies will indicate. Article 20 of the Augsburg Confession declares, People outside of Christ and without faith in the Holy Spirit are in the power of the devil. He drives them into many kinds of manifest sin. For that reason, we begin our teaching with faith, through which the Holy Spirit is given, and by pointing out that Christ helps us and protects us against the devil, end quote. And shortly afterward, the article states that, quote, Human reason and power without Christ is much too weak for Satan, who incites men to sin, end quote. These statements indicate clearly that the Augsburg Confession does not in any way recognize the freedom of the human will in spiritual matters. On the contrary, it declares that man is the captive of Satan. This being the case, how can man, by his own powers, turn to the gospel or to Christ? The Apology teaches as follows concerning free will. Quote, we also declare that to a certain extent reason has a free will. For in those matters which can be comprehended by reason, we have a free will. And shortly thereafter, quote, Hearts which are without the Holy Spirit or without fear of God, without faith, do not trust or believe that God will hear them, that he forgives their sin or that he will help them in their troubles. Therefore, they are without God. An evil tree cannot bear good fruit, and without faith no one can please God. Therefore, though we grant that it lies within our power to perform such external works, we declare that in spiritual things our free will and reason can do nothing. From this, we see clearly that the apology does not ascribe to man's will any ability either to initiate something good or by itself to cooperate. The Schmalkald articles reject the following errors concerning free will. That man has a free will to do good and to avoid evil, and shortly thereafter, quote, that there is no scriptural basis for the position that the Holy Spirit and his grace are necessary for good works. The small called article state further, this repentance continues in Christians until death, for it contends with the sin remaining in the flesh throughout life. As St. Paul says in Romans 7 verse 23, that he wars with the law in his members, and that he does not do he does so not by his own powers, but through the gift of the Holy Spirit which follows upon the forgiveness of sins. This gift purifies us and daily sweeps out the remaining sin and operates to make man truly pure and holy. These words say nothing at all about our will, nor do they say that even in the regenerated the will can do something of itself. On the contrary, they ascribe everything to the gift of the Holy Spirit, who purifies and daily makes man more pious and holy, to the complete exclusion of our own powers. In his large catechism, Luther writes, quote, I am also a part and member of this Christian church, a shareholder and partaker in it, of all the goods which it possesses. 
the Holy Spirit has brought me there too and has incorporated me therein through this, that I have heard the word of God and still hear it, which is the beginning of my entrance into it. For before we become members of the Christian church, we belonged entirely to the devil and were completely ignorant of God and Christ. Until the last day, the Holy Spirit remains with the holy community of Christendom, through which he heals us and which he uses to proclaim and propagate his word, whereby he initiates and increases sanctification, so that we grow daily and become strong in faith and in its fruits which he creates. In these words, <clears throat> the Catechism makes no mention whatever of our free will or of our contribution, but ascribes everything to the Holy Spirit, namely that through the ministry he brings us into the church, sanctifies us therein, and effects in us a daily increase in faith and good works. Although the regenerated, while still in this life, reach the point where they desire to do the good and delight in it, indeed actually do good deeds and grow in sanctification. Nevertheless, as mentioned above, we do this not of our own will and power, but the Holy Spirit, as St. Paul says, creates such willing and doing. Philippians 2 verse 13. Just as the Apostle ascribes this work alone to God when he says, quote, We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Ephesians 2 verse 10. In Dr. Luther's small catechism we read, I believe that by my own reason or strength I cannot believe in Jesus Christ my Lord or come to him. But the Holy Spirit has called me through the gospel, enlightened me with his gifts, and sanctified and preserved me in true faith, just as he calls, gathers, enlightens, and sanctifies the whole Christian church on earth and preserves it in union with Christ Jesus in the one true faith. And in the exposition of the second petition of the Lord's Prayer, Luther answers the question, how does the kingdom of God come to us? As follows, when the Heavenly Father gives us his Holy Spirit, so that by his grace we may believe his holy word and live a godly life. These testimonies indicate clearly that we cannot by our own powers come to Christ, but that God must give us his Holy Spirit who enlightens, sanctifies, and brings us to Christ in true faith and keeps us with him. These testimonies make no mention whatever of our will and cooperation. We shall also include a statement from Dr. Luther's uh, great confession concerning the Holy Supper, in which he solemnly declares that he will not deviate from his doctrine until his death. Quote, I herewith reject and condemn as sheer error every doctrine which glorifies our free will, as directly and diametrically contrary to the help and grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Outside of Christ, death and sin are our masters, and the devil is our God and Lord, and there is no power or ability, no cleverness or reason with which we can prepare ourselves for righteousness and life or seek after it. On the contrary, we must remain the dupes and captives of sin and the property of the devil to do and to think what pleases them and what is contrary to God and his commandments. In these words... Dr. Luther, of sacred and holy memory, grants our free will no power of its own to prepare itself and to strive for righteousness. On the contrary, he states that blind and captive man performs only the devil's will, and what is contrary to the Lord God. There is therefore no cooperation on the part of our will and man's conversion. God himself must draw man and give him new birth. Without this, our heart of itself does not once think to turn to the holy gospel and to accept it. 
Dr. Luther discusses this entire uh, matter in his book, The Bondage of the Will, in which he writes concerning the enslaved will of man against Erasmus, and carefully and in great detail presents and demonstrates his case. Again, in a splendid exposition of Genesis, especially of chapter 26, he repeats and explicates the same thought. In these writings, he also takes up several special disputed points which Erasmus raised. Uh, For example, the question of absolute necessity. Indicates how he intended his statements to be understood and defends them diligently to the best of his ability against all misunderstanding and misinterpretation. We hereby appeal to these writings and refer others to them. Therefore, men teach wrongly when they pretend that unregenerated man still has enough powers to want and accept the gospel and to comfort himself with it, and that thus the human will cooperates in conversion. Such erroneous views are contrary to the holy scriptures of God, the Christian Augsburg Confession, its Apology, the Small Called Articles, the Large and Small Catechisms of Luther, and other writings of this eminent and enlightened theologian. Both enthusiasts and Epicureans have in an unchristian fashion misused the doctrine of the impotence and the wickedness of our natural free will, as well as the doctrine that our conversion and regeneration are exclusively the work of God and not of our own powers. As a result of their statements, many people have become dissolute and disorderly, lazy and indifferent to such Christian exercises as prayer, reading, and Christian meditation. They argue that since they cannot convert themselves by their own natural powers, they will continue wholly to resist God or wait until God forcibly converts them against their will. Or they argue that since everything is altogether the work of the Holy Spirit, they can do nothing of themselves in these spiritual matters. They will refuse to heed, hear, or read the word and the sacraments, and will, but will wait until God pours his gifts into them out of heaven, without means and they are able actually to feel and to perceive that God has truly converted them. On the other hand, despondent hearts may fall into grave anxiety and doubt, and wonder if God has really elected them and actually purposes through his Holy Spirit to work these gifts of his within them, since they feel no strong, ardent faith and cordial obedience, but only weakness and anxiety and misery. We shall now set forth from the word of God how man is converted to God, how and by what means, namely the oral word and the holy sacraments, the Holy Spirit wills to be efficacious in us by giving and working true repentance, faith, and new spiritual power and ability for good in our hearts, and how we are to relate ourselves to and use these means. It is not God's will that anyone should be damned, but that all men should turn themselves to him and be saved forever. Quote, as I live, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Ezekiel 33, verse 11. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whosoever believes on him should not perish, but have eternal life. John 3, 16. To this end, in his boundless kindness and mercy, God provides for the public proclamation of his divine, eternal law and the wonderful counsel concerning our redemption namely the holy and only saving gospel of his eternal Son, our only Savior and Redeemer, Jesus Christ. Thereby he gathers an eternal church for himself out of the human race and works in the hearts of men true repentance and knowledge of their sins and true faith in the Son of God, Jesus Christ. 
And it is God's will to call men to eternal salvation, to draw them to himself, convert them, beget them anew, and sanctify them through this means and in no other way. Namely, through his holy word, when one hears it preached or reads it, and the sacraments, when they are used according to his word. For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. 1 Corinthians 1 verse 21. Peter will declare to you a message by which you will be saved, you and your household. Acts 11 verse 14. Faith comes from what is heard, and what is heard comes by the preaching of Christ. Romans 10 17. Sanctify them in the truth. Thy word is truth. I pray for those who are to believe in me through their word. John 17, verses 17 and 20. Therefore the Eternal Father calls out from heaven concerning his beloved Son and concerning all who in his name preach repentance and the remission of sins. Listen to him. And that's Matthew 17, verse 5. All who would be saved must hear this preaching. For the preaching and the hearing of God's word are the Holy Spirit's instrument in, with, and through which he calls to, he wills to act efficaciously, to convert men to God, and to work in them both to will and to achieve. The person who is not yet converted to God and regenerated can hear and read this word externally, because, as stated above, even after the fall, man still has something of a free will in these external matters, so that he can go to church, listen to the sermon, or not listen to it. Through this means, namely the preaching and the hearing of his word, God is active, breaks our hearts, and draws man, so that through the preaching of the law, man learns to know his sins, and the wrath of God, and experiences genuine terror, contrition, and sorrow in his heart. And through the preaching of and meditation upon the holy gospel of the gracious forgiveness of sins in Christ, there is kindled in him a spark of faith, which accepts the forgiveness of sins for Christ's sake and comforts itself with the promise of the gospel. And in this way, the Holy Spirit, who works all of this, is introduced into the heart. On the one hand, it is true that both the preachers planting and watering and the hearers running and willing would be in vain. And no conversion would follow if there were not added the power and operation of the Holy Spirit, who through the word preached and heard illuminates and converts hearts so that men believe this word and give their assent to it. On the other hand, neither the preacher nor the hearer should question this grace and operation of the Holy Spirit, but should be certain that when the word of God is preached, pure and unalloyed according to God's command and will, and when the people diligently and earnestly listen to and meditate on it, God is certainly present with his grace, and gives what man is unable by his own powers to take or to give. We should not and cannot pass judgment on the Holy Spirit's presence, operations, and gifts merely on the basis of our feeling, how and when we perceive it in our hearts. On the contrary, because the Holy Spirit's activity often is hidden and happens under cover of great weakness, we should be certain because of and on the basis of his promise that the word which is heard and preached is an office and work of the Holy Spirit, whereby he assuredly is potent and active in our hearts. 2 Corinthians 2, verse 14. If a person will not hear preaching or read the word of God, but despises the word and the community of God, dies in this condition and perishes in his sins, he can neither comfort himself with God's eternal election nor obtain his mercy. For Christ, in whom we are elected, 
offers his grace to all men in the word and the holy sacraments, earnestly wills that we hear it, and has promised that where two or three are gathered together in his name and occupy themselves with his holy word, he is in the midst of them. Matthew 18, verse 20. But if such a person despises the instruments of the Holy Spirit and will not hear, no injustice is done him if the Holy Spirit does not illuminate him, but lets him remain in the darkness of his unbelief and be lost. As it is written, How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, but you would not. Matthew 23, verse 37. In this case, it is correct to say that man is not a stone or a block. A stone or a block does not resist the person who moves it, neither does it understand or perceive what is being done to it as a man does who with his will resists the Lord God until he is converted. And it is equally true that prior to his conversion, man is still a rational creature with an intellect and will, not, however, an intellect in divine things or a volition that wills what is good and wholesome. Yet he can do nothing whatsoever towards his conversion. As was mentioned above, and in this respect is much worse than a stone or block, for he resists the word of and will of God until God raises him from the death of sin, illuminates him, and renews him. It is true that God does not coerce anyone to piety, for those who always resist the Holy Spirit and oppose and constantly rebel against acknowledged truth, as Stephen describes the obstinate Jews in Acts 7 verse 51, will not be converted. Nevertheless, the Lord God draws the person whom he wills to convert and draws him in such a way that man's darkened reason becomes an enlightened one and his resisting will becomes an obedient will. This the scriptures call the creation of a new heart. For this same reason, is not, it is not quite right to say that before his conversion, man has a mode of acting in the sense of a mode of doing something good and wholesome in divine matters. Prior to his conversion, man is dead in sin, Ephesians 2 verse 5. Hence, there can be in him no power to do something good in divine matters, and he cannot have a mode of acting in divine matters. But if one is discussing the question of how God operates in man, it is correct to say that the Lord God indeed has one mode of acting in man as a rational creature, and another mode of action to work in irrational creatures or in a stone or block. Nevertheless, one cannot ascribe to man prior to his conversion any mode of acting by which he does anything good in spiritual matters. But after a man is converted and thereby enlightened and his will is renewed, then he wills that which is good, insofar as he is reborn or a new man, and he delights in the law of God according to his inmost self. Romans 7.22 and immediately he does good, as much and as long as the Holy Spirit motivates him. As St. Paul says, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Romans 8 verse 14. This impulse of the Holy Spirit is no coercion or compulsion, because the converted man spontaneously does that which is good. As David says, Your people will offer themselves freely on the day you lead your host. Psalm 110 verse 3. Nevertheless, the words of St. Paul apply also to the regenerated. For I delight in the law of God in my inmost self, but I see in my members another law at war with the law of my mind, and making me captive to the law of sin which dwells in my members. Again, 
So then I of myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh the law of sin. Romans 7, 22, 23, and 25. And again, for the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to prevent you from doing what you would. Galatians uh, 5, verse 17. From this it follows that as soon as the Holy Spirit has initiated his work of regeneration and renewal in us through the word and the holy sacraments, it is certain that we can and must cooperate by the power of the Holy Spirit, even though we still do so in great weakness. Such cooperation does not proceed from our carnal and natural powers, but from the new powers and gifts which the Holy Spirit has begun in us in conversion as St. Paul express, expressly and earnestly reminds us, working together with him, then, we entreat you not to accept the grace of God in vain. Uh, 2 Corinthians 6, verse 1. This is to be understood in no other way than that the converted man does good as much and as long as God rules him through his Holy Spirit, guides and leads him. But if God should withdraw his gracious hand, Man could not remain in obedience to God for one moment. But if this were to be understood as though the converted man cooperates alongside the Holy Spirit, the way two horses draw a wagon together, such a truth could by no means be conceded without detriment to the divine truth. There is therefore a great difference between baptized people and unbaptized people, because according to the teaching of St. Paul, all who have been baptized have put on Christ, Galatians 3, verse 27, are thus truly born again and now have a liberated will. That is, as Christ says, they have again been made free, John 8, 36. As a result, they not only hear the word of God, but are also are able to assent to it and accept it, even though it be in great weakness. But since in this life we have received only the first fruits of the Spirit, and regeneration is not as yet perfect, but has only been begun in us. The conflict and warfare of the flesh against the spirit continues also in the elect and truly reborn. Again, there is not only a great difference between Christians, one being weak and the other strong in the spirit, but even the individual Christian in his own life discovers that at one moment he is joyful in the spirit and at another moment fearful and terrified. At one time ardent in love, strong in faith and in hope, and at another time cold and weak. But if those who have been baptized act contrary to their conscience and permit sin to rule in themselves and thus grieve the Holy Spirit within them and lose him, they dare not be baptized again, though they must certainly be converted again, as we have sufficiently reported above on this matter. It is, of course, self-evident that in true conversion there must be a change. There must be new activities and emotions in the intellect, will, and heart, so that the heart learns to know sin, to fear the wrath of God, to turn from sin, to understand and accept the promise of grace in Christ, to have good spiritual thoughts, Christian intentions, and diligence, and to fight against the flesh, etc. For if none of these things take place or exists, there is no true conversion. But since the question is asked concerning the efficient cause, that is, who works these things in us, from where man acquires these things, and how he comes by them, our doctrine answers in this way. Man's natural powers cannot contribute anything or help in any way. 1 Corinthians 2, 4-12, 2 Corinthians 3, 4-12. 
to bring it about that God in his immeasurable kindness and mercy anticipates us and has his holy gospel preached to us, through which the Holy Spirit wills to work such conversion and renewal in us. And through uh, the preaching of his word and our meditation upon it, kindles faith and other God-pleasing virtues in us, so that they are gifts and works of the Holy Spirit alone. This doctrine directs us to the means through which the Holy Spirit wills to begin and accomplish all this, reminds us also how he preserves, strengthens, and increases these gifts, and admonishes us not to receive this grace of God in vain, but to exercise ourselves in considering what a grievous sin it is to hinder and resist such operations of the Holy Spirit. On the basis of this thorough presentation of the entire doctrine of free will, it is possible to decide the questions that for a considerable number of years have been agitated in the churches of the Augsburg Confession. Whether man before, in, or after his conversion resists the Holy Spirit, and if he does nothing at all but merely suffers what God accomplishes in him. Whether man in his conversion behaves and is like a block. Uh, whether the Holy Spirit is given to those who resist him whether the conversion is brought about through coercion so that God forcibly compels a man to be converted against his will. In the light of the previous discussion, one can readily recognize, expose, reject, and condemn such false doctrines and errors as these. 1. The absurdity of the Stoics and Manichaeans in holding that everything must happen as it does that man acts only under coercion, that even in external works man will ha man's will has no freedom or power whatever to achieve a measure of external righteousness and honorable behavior, and to avoid manifest sins and vices, or that the will of man is coerced into doing such wicked acts as lechery, robbery, and murder. 2. The error of the coarse Pelagians, that by his own natural powers, Without the Holy Spirit, the free will can convert itself to God, believe the gospel, and obey the law of God from the heart, and by this spontaneous obedience earn the forgiveness of sin and eternal life. 3. The error of the Papists and Scholastics, whose doctrine was slightly more subtle, and who taught that by his natural powers man can start out towards that which is good and toward his own conversion, and that thereupon, since man is too weak to complete it, the Holy Spirit comes to the aid of the good work which man began by his natural powers. 4. The teaching of the synergists, who maintain that in spiritual things man is not wholly dead toward that which is good, but only grievously wounded and half-dead. As a result, his free will is too weak to make a beginning, and by its own powers to convert itself to God and to obey the law of God from it, the heart. Nevertheless, after the Holy Spirit has made the beginning and has called us by the gospel and offers his grace, the forgiveness of sins and eternal life, then the free will, by its own natural powers, can meet God and to some degree, though only to a small extent and in a weak way, accept and cooperate and prepare itself for the grace of God, embrace and accept it, believe the gospel, and by its own powers cooperate with the Holy Spirit in the continuation and preservation of this work within us. But we have shown above that such a capacity naturally to prepare oneself for grace does not come from man's own natural powers, but solely through the operation of the Holy Spirit. 5. Likewise, we reject the teachings of the papists and the monks that man, after his conversion, can keep the law of God perfectly in this life, and by such perfect obedience of the law merit righteousness before God and eternal life. 6. 
On the other hand, we must condemn with all seriousness and zeal and in no wise tolerate in the church of God the enthusiasts who imagine that without means, without the hearing of the divine word, and without the use of the holy sacraments, God draws man to himself, illuminates, justifies, and saves him. 7. Likewise, those who imagine that in conversion and regeneration, God creates a new heart and a new man in such a way that the substance and essence of the old Adam, and especially the rational soul, are completely destroyed, and a new substance of the soul is created out of nothing. This error St. Augustine condemns in express words in his commentary on Psalm 25, where he adduces and explains St. Paul's words, put off the old man, as follows. Lest anyone might think that the substance or essence of man must be laid aside, he himself explains what it means to lay off the old man and put on the new man by adding, therefore lay aside lies and speak the truth. Behold, this is laying off the old man and putting on the new man. Uh, 8. We also reject the following formulas, if they are used without explanation. That man's will before, in, and after conversion resists the Holy Spirit, and that the Holy Spirit is given to those who resist him. From the foregoing exposition, it is clear that when the Holy Spirit's activity produces no change at all for good in the intellect, will, and heart, when man in no way believes the promise and is not prepared by God for grace, but wholly resists the word, conversion does not and cannot take place. For conversion is that kind of change through the Holy Spirit's activity in the intellect, will, and heart of man, whereby man, through such working of the Holy Spirit, is able to accept the offered grace. All who stubbornly and perseveringly resist the Holy Spirit's activities and impulses, which take place through the word, do not receive the Holy Spirit, but grieve and lose him. Of course, there remains also in the regenerated a resistance of which the scriptures say that the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and likewise that the passions of the flesh wage war against the soul, and the law of our members is at war with the law of our mind. It's, uh, Galatians 5.17, 1 Peter 2.11, and Romans 7.23. Hence, the unregenerated man resists God entirely and is completely the servant of sin. But the regenerated man delights in the law of God according to the inmost self, though he also sees in his members the law of sin at war with the law of his mind. For that reason, with the law of his mind, he serves the law of God, but with his flesh, he serves the law of sin. Again, Romans 7, 22, 23, and 25. In this way, one can and should explain and teach the correct opinion in this matter thoroughly, clearly, and definitively. The formula is, uh, man's will is not idle in conversion, but also does something. And God draws, but he draws the person who wills, uh, mostly used by John Chrysostom and Pseudo-Basil. Uh, well, they were introduced to support the view that man's naturally free will cooperates in his conversion, contrary to the article of God's grace. It is evident from the preceding discussion that this position does not conform to the form of sound doctrine, but rather opposes it, and therefore is rightly to be avoided in the discussion of man's conversion to God. For the conversion of our corrupted will, which is nothing else but a resurrection of the will from spiritual death, is solely and alone the work of God, just as the bodily resurrection of the flesh is to be ascribed to God alone, as was thoroughly demonstrated above from clear passages of Holy Scripture. 
It has also been explained in sufficient detail above that in conversion, through the drawing of the Holy Spirit, God makes willing people out of resisting and unwilling people, and that after such conversion, man's reborn will is not idle in the daily exercise of repentance, but cooperates in all the works that the Holy Spirit does through us. Again, when Luther says that man behaves in a purely passive way in his conversion, that is, that man does not do anything toward it, and that man only suffers that which God works in him, he did not mean that conversion takes place without the preaching and the hearing of the divine word, nor did he mean that in conversion the Holy Spirit engenders no new impulses and begins no spiritual operations in us. On the contrary, it is his understanding that man of himself or by his natural powers is unable to do anything and cannot assist in any way toward his conversion, and that man's conversion is uh, not only in part, but entirely the operation, gift, endowment, and work of the Holy Spirit alone, who accomplishes and performs it by his power, and might through the word in the intellect, will, and heart of man. Man is, as it were, the subject which suffers. That is, man does or works nothing, he only suffers, though not as a stone does when a statue is carved out of it, or wax when a seal is impressed into it, for these do not know anything about what is going on, or perceive, or will anything in connection with it, but in the way and after the manner set forth and explained above. The young students at our universities have been greatly misled by the doctrine of the three efficient causes of unregenerated man's conversion to God, particularly as to the manner in which these three, the word of God preached and heard, the Holy Spirit, and man's will, uh, concur. That's uh, Melanchthonism, more or less. From the previous explanation, it is evident that conversion to God is solely of God the Holy Spirit, who is the true craftsman who alone works these things, for which he uses the preaching and the hearing of his holy word as his ordinary means and instrument. The unconverted man's intellect and will are only that which is to be converted, since they are the intellect and will of a man who is spiritually dead, in whom the Holy Spirit works conversion and renewal. Toward this work, the will of the person who is to be converted does nothing, but only lets God work in him until he is converted. Then he cooperates with the Holy Spirit in subsequent good works by doing that which is pleasing to God in the manner and degree set forth in detail above. Article 3. The Righteousness of Faith Before God the third controversy which has arisen among several theologians of the Augsburg Confession concerns the righteousness of Christ, or of faith which God by grace through faith reckons to poor sinners as righteousness. The one party contended that the righteousness of faith, which St. Paul calls the righteousness of God in Romans 1.22, is the essential righteousness of God, namely Christ himself as the true, natural, essential Son of God, who through faith dwells in the elect, impels them to do what is right, and is in this way their righteousness. And that in comparison with this righteousness, the sins of all men are like a drop of water compared to the mighty ocean. On the other hand, some have held and thought that Christ is our righteousness only according to his human nature. That's uh, Francis Stancaro and Peter Lombard. Against both parties, the other teachers of the Augsburg Confession held unanimously that Christ is our righteousness, 
not according to the divine nature alone or according to the human nature alone, but according to both natures. As God and man, he has by his perfect obedience redeemed us from our sins, justified and saved us. Therefore, they maintain that the righteousness of faith is forgiveness of sins, reconciliation with God, and the fact that we are adopted as God's children solely on account of the obedience of Christ, which through faith alone is reckoned by pure grace to all true believers as righteousness, and that they are absolved from all their unrighteousness because of this obedience. Several other controversies concerning the article of justification were occasioned and evoked by the interim and otherwise, which will be set forth below in the antitheses, that is, in the enumeration of those who contradict the pure doctrine. In the words of the Apology, this article of justification by faith is the chief article of the entire Christian doctrine, without which no poor conscience can have any abiding comfort or rightly understand the riches of the grace of Christ. In the same vein, Dr. Luther declared, where this single article remains pure, Christendom will remain pure in beautiful harmony and without any schisms. But where it does not remain pure, it is impossible to repel any error or heretical spirit. And St. Paul says specifically of this doctrine that a little leaven ferments the whole lump, 1 Corinthians 5 verse 6. Therefore, he stresses the exclusive terms, that is, the terms by which all human works are excluded, such as without the law, without works, and by grace alone, 1 Corinthians 5, 6 and Galatians 5, 9. He stresses these terms with such zeal in order to indicate how very important it is that in this article, side by side with the true doctrine, we clearly segregate, expose, and condemn the false contrary doctrine. Therefore, to explain this controversy in a Christian way according to the word of God and to settle it by his grace, we affirm our teaching, belief, and confession as follows. Concerning the righteousness of faith before God, we believe, teach, and confess unanimously in accord with the summary formulation of our Christian faith and confession described above that a poor sinner is justified before God, that is, he, he is absolved and declared utterly free from all his sins and from the verdict of well-deserved damnation, and is adopted as a child of God and an heir of eternal life without any merit or worthiness on our part, and without any preceding, present, or subsequent works, by sheer grace, solely through the merit of the total obedience, the bitter passion, the death, and the resurrection of Christ our Lord, whose obedience is reckoned to us as righteousness. The Holy Spirit offers these treasures to us in the promise of the gospel, and faith is the only means whereby we can apprehend, accept, apply them to ourselves, and make them our own. Faith is a gift of God, whereby we rightly learn to know Christ our Redeemer in the word of the gospel and to trust in him, that solely for the sake of his obedience we have forgiveness of sins by grace, are accounted righteous and holy by God the Father, and are saved forever. Thus the following statements of St. Paul are to be considered and taken as synonymous. We are justified by faith, Romans 3.28, or faith is reckoned to us as righteousness, Romans 4 verse 5, or when he says that we are justified by the obedience of Christ our only mediator, or that one man's act of righteousness leads to acquittal and life for all men. Romans 5.18 For faith does not justify because it is so good a work and so God-pleasing a virtue, but because it lays hold on and accepts the merit of Christ and the promise of the Holy Gospel. 
This merit has to be applied to us and to be made our own through faith if we are to be justified thereby. Therefore, the righteousness which by grace is reckoned to faith or to the believers is the obedience, the passion, and the resurrection of Christ when he satisfied the law for us and paid for our sin. Since Christ is not only man, but God and man in one undivided person, he was as little under the law, since he is the Lord of the law, as he was obligated to suffer and die for his person. Therefore, his obedience consists not only in his suffering and dying, but also in his spontaneous subjection to the law in our stead, and his keeping of the law in so perfect a fashion that, reckoning it to us as righteousness, God forgives us our sins, accounts us holy and righteous, and saves us forever on account of this entire obedience which, by doing and suffering in life and in death, Christ rendered for us to his heavenly Father. This righteousness is offered to us by the Holy Spirit through the gospel and in the sacraments and is applied, appropriated, and accepted by faith, so that thus believers have reconciliation with God, forgiveness of sins, the grace of God, adoption, and the inheritance of eternal life. Accordingly, the word justify here means to declare righteous and free from sins and from the eternal punishment of these sins on account of the righteousness of Christ, which God reckons to faith, Philippians 3 verse 9. And this is the usual usage and meaning of the word in the Holy Scriptures of the Old and New Testament. He who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the righteous are both alike an abomination to the Lord. Proverbs 17 verse 15. Woe to those who acquit the godless for a bribe and deprive the innocent of his right. Isaiah 5 verse 22. Who shall bring any charges against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Romans 8 33 that is, absolves and acquits from sins. Since the word regeneration is sometimes used in place of justification, it is necessary to explain the term strictly so that the renewal which follows justification by faith will not be confused with justification, and so that in their strict senses the two will be differentiated from one another. The word regeneration is used in the first place to include both the forgiveness of sins solely for Christ's sake and the subsequent renewal which the Holy Spirit works in those who are justified by faith. But this word is also used in the limited sense of the forgiveness of sins and our adoption as God's children. In this latter sense, it is frequently used in the Apology where the statement is made, justification is regeneration. That is, justification before God is regeneration, just as St. Paul uses the terms discriminately when he states, He saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewing in the Holy Spirit, Titus 3, verse 5. Likewise, the term vivification, that is, being made alive, has sometimes been used in the same sense. For when the Holy Spirit has brought a person to faith and has justified him, a regeneration has indeed taken place because he has transformed a child of wrath into a child of God, and thus has translated him from death into life, as it is written, When we were dead through our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. Ephesians 2, verse 5. He through faith is righteous, shall live. Romans 1, verse 17. The Apology often uses the term in this sense. Frequently, the word regeneration means the sanctification or renewal which follows the righteousness of faith. As Dr. Luther used the term in his book, On the Councils and the Church and Elsewhere. 
when we teach that through the Holy Spirit's work we are reborn and justified, we do not mean that after regeneration no unrighteousness and essence and life adheres to those who have been justified in regeneration. But we hold that Christ, with his perfect obedience, covers all our sins, which throughout this life still inhere in our nature. Nevertheless, they are regarded as holy and righteous through faith, and for the sake of Christ's obedience, which Christ rendered to his Father from his birth until his ignominious death on the cross for us, even though on account of their corrupted nature they are still sinners and remain sinners until they die. Nor, on the other hand, does this mean that we may or should follow in the ways of sin, abide and continue therein without repentance, conversion, and improvement. For genuine contrition must proceed. And to those who by sheer grace, for the sake of the only mediator, Christ, through faith alone, without any work or merit, are justified before God, that is, accepted into grace, there is given the Holy Spirit, who renews and sanctifies them, and creates within them love toward God and their fellow man. But because the inchoate renewal remains imperfect in this life, and because sin still dwells in the flesh, even in the case of the regenerated, the righteousness of faith before God consists solely in the gracious reckoning of Christ's righteousness to us, without the addition of our works, so that our sins are forgiven and covered up and are not reckoned to our account. Romans 4, 6-8 through 8. Here, too, if the article of justification is to remain pure, we must give especially diligent heed that we do not mingle or insert that which precedes faith or follows faith into the article of justification, as if it were a necessary or component part of this article, since we cannot talk in one and the same way about conversion and about justification. For not everything that belongs to conversion is simultaneously also a part of justification. The only essential and necessary elements of justification are the grace of God, the merit of Christ, and faith which accepts these in the promise of the gospel, uh, whereby the righteousness of Christ is reckoned to us, and by which we obtain the forgiveness of sins, reconciliation with God, adoption, and the inheritance of eternal life. Thus there cannot be genuine saving faith in those who live without contrition and sorrow, and have a wicked intention to remain and abide in sin. For true contrition proceeds and genuine faith exists only in or with true repentance. Love is a fruit which certainly and necessarily follows true faith. For if, if a person does not love, this indicates certainly that he is not justified but is still in death, or that he has again lost the righteousness of faith, as St. John says in 1 John 3 verse 14. But when St. Paul says we are justified by faith apart from works, Romans 3.28, he indicates thereby that neither the preceding contrition nor the subsequent works belong in the article or matter of justification by faith. For good works do not precede justification, rather they follow it, since a person must first be righteous before he can do good works. Similarly, although renewal and sanctification are a blessing of Christ, the mediator and a work of the Holy Spirit, it does not belong in the article or matter of justification before God. It rather follows justification because in this life sanctification is never wholly pure and perfect on account of our corrupted flesh. In his beautiful and exhaustive exposition of the epistle to the Galatians, Dr. Luther well states, quote, We certainly grant that we must teach about love and good works too, but it must be done at the time and place where it is necessary, namely, when we deal with good works apart from this matter of justification. 
At this point, the main question with which we have to do is not whether a person should also do good works and love, and how a person may be justified before God and be saved. And then we answer with St. Paul that we are justified alone through faith in Christ, and not through the works of the law or through love, not in such a way as if we thereby utterly rejected works and love, as the adversaries falsely slander and accuse us, but so that we may not be diverted, as Satan would very much like, from the main issue with which we here have to do into, uh, into another extraneous matter which does not belong in this article at all. Therefore, while and as long as we have to do with this article of justification, we reject and condemn works, since the very nature of this article cannot admit any treatment or discussion of works. For this reason, we summarily cut off every reference to the law and the works of the law in this conjunction. So far, Luther. Not only on this account, but also in order to afford saddened consciences dependable and reliable comfort, and to give due honor to the merit of Christ and the grace of God, Scripture teaches that the righteousness of faith before God consists solely in a gracious reconciliation or the forgiveness of sins, which is bestowed upon us by pure grace because of the unique merit of Christ, the mediator, in which we receive only by faith in the promise of the gospel. Accordingly, in justification before God, faith trusts neither in contrition, nor in love, nor in other virtues, but solely in Christ, and in him, in his perfect obedience, with which he fulfilled the law of God in our stead, and which is reckoned to the believers as righteousness. Neither is contrition nor love or any other virtue the means and instrument with and through which we could receive and accept the grace of God, the merit of Christ, and the forgiveness of sin offered to us in the promise of the gospel, but only faith. It is indeed correct to say that believers who through faith in Christ have been justified possess in this life first the reckoned righteousness of faith and second, also, the inchoate righteousness of the new obedience, or of good works. But these two dare not be confused with one another or introduced simultaneously into the article of justification by faith before God. For because this inchoate righteousness, or renewal in us, is imperfect and impure in this life on account of the flesh, no one can therewith and thereby stand before the tribunal of God. Only the righteousness of the obedience, passion, and death of Christ, which is reckoned to faith, can stand before God's tribunal. Hence, even after his renewal, after he has done many good works and leads the best kind of life, a person is pleasing and acceptable to God and is adopted to sonship in the inheritance of eternal life only on account of Christ's obedience. At this, St. Paul's statement concerning Abraham is apposite. He says that Abraham was justified before God through faith alone for the sake of the mediator, uh, without the addition of his own works, not only when he was first converted from idolatry and had no good works, but also afterward when the Holy Spirit had renewed and adorned him with many resplendent good works. Romans 4.3, Genesis 15.6, Hebrews 11.8. And St. Paul raises this question, Romans 4 verse 1. On what did the righteousness of Abraham before God, whereby he had a gracious God and was pleasing and acceptable to him to eternal life, rest? To this he answers, to the one who does not work, but trusts in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is reckoned as righteousness. Romans 4, 5, and 6. 
And David also says that salvation belongs solely to that person to whom God reckons righteousness without the addition of works. From this it follows that although converted persons and believers possess the beginning of renewal, sanctification, love, virtues, and good works, these should and must not be drawn or mingled into the article of justification before God, in order to preserve the glory due to Christ, the Redeemer, and because our new obedience is imperfect and impure, in order to supply tempted consciences with abiding comfort. And this is St. Paul's intention when in this article he so earnestly and diligently stresses such exclusive terms, that is, terms that exclude works from the article of justification by faith as without works, without the law, freely, not of works, all of which uh, exclusive terms may be summarized in the assertion that we are justified before God and saved through faith alone. This terminology does not exclude works, however, as though there could well be true faith without true contrition, or as though good works should, must, and dare not follow true faith as certain and unquestioned fruits or as though believers must or dare do nothing good. The point is that good works are excluded from the article of justification so that, in the treatment of the justification of poor sinners before God, they should not be drawn, woven, or mingled in. And the right understanding of the exclusive terms in the article of justification, that is, of the terms in the article of justification listed above, consists solely therein. Uh, the same points should be urged with all diligence and seriousness in the treatment of, the, treatment of this article. 1. That thereby there are excluded completely from the article of justification all our own works, merit, worthiness, glory, and trust in any of our works, so that we might or should not view our works as either the cause or the meritorious basis of our justification which God takes into consideration in this article or matter, or rely on them, or make or regard them as entirely or one-half or even only to the smallest degree factors in our justification. 2. That faith's sole office and property is to serve as the only and exclusive means and instrument with and through which we receive, grasp, accept, apply to ourselves, and appropriate the grace and the merit of Christ in the promise of the gospel. From this office and property of application and appropriation, we must exclude love and every other virtue or work. 3. That neither renewal, sanctification, virtues, nor other good works are our righteousness before God, nor are they to be made and posited to be a part or a cause of our justification, nor under any kind of pretense, title, or name are they to be mingled with the article of justification as pertinent or necessary to it. The righteousness of faith consists solely in the forgiveness of sins by sheer grace, entirely for the sake of Christ's merit, which treasures are offered to us in the promise of the gospel and received, accepted, applied to us, and made our own solely through faith. In this way, too, the proper order between faith and good works is bound to be maintained and preserved, as well as between justification and renewal or sanctification. For good works do not precede faith, nor is sanctification prior to justification. First, the Holy Spirit kindles faith in us in conversion through the hearing of the gospel. Faith apprehends the grace of God in Christ, whereby the person is justified. After the person is justified, the Holy Spirit next renews and sanctifies him. And from this renewal and sanctification, the fruits of good works will follow. 
This is not to be understood, however, as though justification and sanctification are separated from each other in such a way as though on occasion true faith could coexist and survive for a while side by side with a wicked intention. But this merely shows the order in which one thing proceeds or follows the other. For Dr. Luther's excellent statement remains true. Quote, There is a beautiful agreement between faith and good works. Nevertheless, it is faith alone which apprehends the blessing without works. And yet faith is at no time ever alone. This has been set forth above. The correct distinction explains usefully and well the various disputed issues which the Apology discusses in connection with James 2.24. If we speak of the manner in which faith justifies, it is St. Paul's doctrine that faith alone justifies without works when, as we have said above, it applies to us and makes our own the merits of Christ. When, however, the question is asked how a Christian can identify, either in his own case or in the case of others, a true living faith and distinguish it from a simulated and dead faith, since many lazy and secure Christians delude themselves into thinking they have faith when they do not have true faith, the Apology gives the following answer, quote, James calls that faith dead where all kinds of good works and the fruits of the Spirit do not follow. In the Latin text of the Apology states, quote, James teaches correctly when he denies that we are justified by such a faith as is without works, which is a dead faith. But as the Apology uh, declares, James is speaking of the good works of those who are already justified through Christ, who are reconciled with God who, and who have obtained forgiveness of sins through Christ. But when we ask where faith gets the power to justify and save, and what belongs thereto, then it is false and incorrect to answer. Faith cannot justify without works, or faith justifies or makes righteous insofar as it is associated with love, on account of which um, love, the power to justify, is ascribed to faith. Or, in the presence of good works, um, along with faith, is necessary if men are to be justified by it before God, or the presence of good works is necessary in the article of justification, or for our justification as a cause without which a person cannot be justified, and that the exclusive terms which St. Paul employs, such as apart from works, do not exclude works from the article of justification. Faith justifies solely for this reason, and on this account, that as a means and instrument, it embraces God's grace and the merit of Christ and the promise of the gospel. Let this suffice as a summary exposition of the doctrine of justification by faith, since it meets the requirements of this document. The doctrine has been set forth in detail in the previously mentioned writings. From these two, the false antitheses become clear, namely that in addition to the errors already named, we must criticize, expose, and reject the following and similar errors as contrary to the preceding explanation. 1. That our love or our good works are a meritorious basis or cause of our justification before God, either entirely or in part. 2. That by good works man must make himself worthy and fit to have the merit of Christ applied to him. 3. That our real righteousness before God is our love or the renewal which the Holy Spirit works and is within us. 4. That righteousness by faith before God consists of two pieces or parts, namely the gracious forgiveness of sins and as a second element, renewal or sanctification. 5. 
that faith justifies only because righteousness is begun in us by faith, or that faith has priority in justification, but that renewal and love likewise belong to our righteousness before God, in such a way, uh, however, that they are not the principal cause, but that our justification before God is incomplete or imperfect without such love and renewal. 6. Likewise, that the believers are justified before God and are righteous both through the reckoned righteousness of Christ and through their own inchoate new obedience, or in part by the reckoning of Christ's righteousness and in part by the inchoate new obedience. 7. Likewise, that the promise of grace is made our own through faith in the heart, through the confession which we make with our mouth, and through other virtues. It is also an error when it is taught that man is saved in a different way or by a different thing from the one by which he is justified by God, as though we are indeed justified solely through faith without works, but that we cannot be saved without works, so that salvation cannot be obtained without works. This is wrong because it is diametrically opposed to Paul's statement that salvation belongs to that man to whom God reckons righteous without works. Romans 4 verse 6. Paul's reason is that we receive both our righteousness and our salvation in one and the same way. In fact, that when we are justified through faith, we simultaneously receive adoption in the inheritance of eternal life and salvation. For this reason, Paul uses and urges exclusive terms, that is, terms that wholly exclude works and our own merit, such as by grace and without works, just as uh, emphatically in the article of salvation as he does in the article of justification. We must also explain correctly the discussion concerning the indwelling of God's essential righteousness in us. On the one hand, it is true indeed that God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit who is the eternal and essential righteousness, dwells by faith in the elect who have been justified through Christ and reconciled with God, since all Christians are temples of God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who impels them to do rightly. But on the other hand, this indwelling of God is not the righteousness of faith of which St. Paul speaks, in which he calls the righteousness of God on account of which we are declared just before God. This indwelling follows the preceding righteousness of faith, which is precisely the forgiveness of sins and the gracious acceptance of poor sinners on account of the obedience and merit of Christ. Hence, since it is in our churches the theologians of the Augsburg Confession accept the principle that we must seek our entire righteousness apart from our own will and other human merits, works, virtues, and worthiness, and that our righteousness rests solely and alone on the Lord Christ. It is important to consider carefully in what way Christ is called our righteousness in this matter of justification. Our righteousness rests neither upon his divine nature nor upon his human nature, but upon the entire person of Christ, who as God and man in his sole, total, and perfect obedience is our righteousness. For even though Christ had been conceived by the Holy Spirit without sin, and had been born and had in his human nature alone fulfilled all righteousness, but had not been true eternal God, the obedience and passion of the human nature could not be reckoned to us as righteousness. Likewise, if the Son of God had not become man, the divine nature alone could not have been our righteousness. 
Therefore, we believe, teach, and confess that the total obedience of Christ's total person, which he rendered to his heavenly Father, even to the most ignominious death of the cross, is reckoned to us as righteousness. For neither the obedience nor the passion of the human nature alone, without the divine nature, could render satisfaction to the eternal and almighty God for the sins of all the world. Likewise, the deity alone, without the humanity, could not mediate between God and us. Since, as was mentioned above, it is the obedience of the entire person, therefore it is a perfect satisfaction and reconciliation of the human race, since it satisfied the eternal and immutable righteousness of God revealed in the law. This obedience is our righteousness which avails before God and is revealed in the gospel, upon which faith depends before God and on which God reckons to faith, as it is written, For as by one man's disobedience men will be made sinners, so by one man's obedience many will be made righteous. Romans 5.19 And the blood of Jesus, his Son, cleanses us from all sin. 1 John 1, verse 7 And again, the righteous shall live by his faith. Habakkuk 2, verse 4 For this reason, neither the divine nor the human nature of Christ by itself is reckoned to us as righteousness, but only the obedience of the person who is God and man at the same time. Faith thus looks at the person of Christ, how this person was placed under the law for us, bore our sin, and in his path to the Father, rendered to his Father entire perfect obedience from his holy birth to his death in the stead of us poor sinners, and thus covered up our disobedience which inheres in our nature, in its thoughts, words, and deeds, so that our disobedience is not reckoned to us for our damnation, but is forgiven and remitted by sheer grace for Christ's sake alone. Accordingly, we unanimously reject and condemn, in addition to the previously mentioned errors, the following and all similar errors as contrary to the word of God, the teaching of the prophets and apostles, and our Christian faith. 1. The doctrine that Christ is our righteousness before God only according to his divine nature. 2. That Christ is our righteousness only according to his human nature. 3. That when the prophets and the apostles speak of the righteousness of faith, the words to justify and to be justified not mean, do not mean to absolve from sins and to receive forgiveness of sins, but to be made really and truly righteous on account of the love and virtues which are poured out into them by the Holy Spirit and the consequent good works. 4. That faith does not look solely to the obedience of Christ, but also to his divine nature, insofar as it dwells and works within us and that by such indwelling our sins are covered up in the sight of God. 5. That faith is such a kind of trust in the obedience of Christ that it can be and remain in a person who has no true repentance, and upon which no love follows, but against his conscience remains in sin. 6. That not God, but only the gifts of God, dwell in believers. These and all similar errors we reject unanimously is contrary to the clear word of God, and by God's grace we shall remain steadfastly and constantly with the doctrine of justification by faith before God as it is set forth, explained, and demonstrated from God's word in the Augsburg Confession and its subsequent apology. If anybody regards anything more as uh, necessary by way of a detailed explanation of this high and important article of justification before God on which the salvation of our souls depends. We direct him for the sake of brevity to, brevity to Dr. Luther's beautiful and splendid exposition of St. Paul's epistle to the Galatians.
Whew, that was an hour and a half of reading. Sorry if I started muddying my words a bit there. Jaw's a little sore. But those two articles there um, on free will, the nature of free will, and on good works, which ends up being more of an article on justification by faith alone, that's our explanation of what Lutherans really believe. And here's what the scripture actually says. Love to hear from you uh, if you have any questions or need some further direction or anything. But until then, can't wait to see you all next week for Articles 4 and 5. God bless you. Amen and amen.